Welcome everyone. This is Diane Fleet and you're listening to the KCADV podcast series. Today we'll be talking about the Clemency Project and the partnership between the Kentucky Coalition Against Domestic Violence and the Department of Public Advocacy. And in the studio today, I have Meg Savage, who is with KCADV. I also have Andrea Reed and Holly Harrison Hawkins with DPA. So thank you all so much for being here today and discussing what I think can sometimes be a heavy subject, but a subject all the all the more important that we really have a good understanding of what's going on with our with our partnership. Well, thank you for having us. You're welcome. It's good to have you. So first, we're going to start a little bit out with Meg, because Meg, I just really kind of want to center like why we have this relationship, what the importance of the, the Clemency Project, and a little bit of our history working with incarcerated women and why that's so important to KCADB. Right. So um, it goes without saying that people who find themselves in an abusive relationship experiencing violence sometimes have to use violence themselves against the person who's been abusing them. And in some of those cases, it would present as a classic self-defense case. The person is coming at you with a weapon and you're acting in self-defense. And sometimes that plays out okay for the the survivor of the domestic violence. But typically, when in a partnership or relationship, one person winds up dead, the other person is going to be charged at least, go through the grand jury proceeding, and it may go all the way to trial, regardless of whether they have a self-defense defense or not. And um, so recognizing that women in particular who um, experienced abuse and oftentimes severe abuse at the hands of a partner that they ultimately then killed were a special class of criminal defendants, KCADV and the Department for Public Advocacy began to partner together to try to seek what's called clemency for those women. So most of them end up getting convicted of some level of homicide. They often get a very substantial sentence. And under our Kentucky Constitution, as with most state constitutions, the governor has the power to grant clemency to people who've been convicted of any type of crime. And that usually takes the form of a commutation, which means, okay, I think you've served enough time and you're you're free to go or a pardon which you know basically says you're forgiven you know for having committed the crime it doesn't actually wipe it off of your criminal record but so that was our efforts were to try to secure some sort of clemency for these women who were convicted of killing their abusers and whether that be at least get them you know out of prison after having usually served a you know a significant amount of time and or getting a pardon from the governor So that was the genesis of our project working together. Thanks so much for sharing that because I think from a from a distance it might look a little unusual for KCADV and DPA to be partners, right? So much of our approach, our activity is is working on laws to support and protect survivors of domestic violence and then looking at laws to incarcerate, you know, folks for either violent behavior or other types of acts that might keep a family kind of in place or in a controlling pattern and we're looking at child abuse and all kinds of things that we often see sort of swirling around domestic violence cases. So it makes sense, I think, to a degree, well, it makes complete sense around clemency and having people respond when women have been accused of in self-defense, and that's what we're usually looking at in these cases, in self-defense, who maybe have committed a murder, but at the same time looking at the situation around that. But I also know from talking to a few other folks and having a conversation with you all prior to this, the incarceration rates of women have dramatically increased. And I think we're looking at, as 
as KCADV is a program that often is looking at women, women in the Commonwealth, best practices around women. I think that's got to be alarming. The incarceration rates that we're seeing in Kentucky of all people, but certainly the increase of incarceration rates around women. And I can't help but think that many times it's their experience as a victim of domestic violence that is sometimes playing out. And that's why we're seeing those rates. So I know we were talking a little bit, Holly, about some of those statistics of incarceration from the beginning and how we're really seeing that spike. So is there anything in particular you want to add that might be causal as to why we're seeing more people in our prison system? Yeah. You know, one of the things that jumps out at me, um, I had read recently that since 1980, the number of women in jail has increased 1,694%, which I mean, honestly, that number, I can't even wrap my brain around. And the number of the number of women in prison is 2,317%. So we've definitely taken a turn as far as the amount of women who are currently incarcerated. Um, And I think Andrea has quite a bit of stats too related to that. Yeah, the uh, stats related to that are really alarming, actually. Um, So between 1980 and 2020, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 475%, basically rising from 26,326 in 1980 to 152,854 in 2020, which, you know, is very alarming. Andrea? Now we're coming to you. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Um, Tell us the real scoop. Tell us the detail. Well, it used, women are the fastest growing segment right now um, in the prison setting. And it used to be that there was more people were incarcerated for, um, we're seeing a lot more of nonviolent offenses. Um, so right now, women, 40% of the criminal convictions are for violent offenses. 60% are for nonviolent offenses for women. So you're seeing women get incarcerated for less severe crimes than the male counterparts. So it's actually the opposite for, for men. If men are incarcerated 60% of the time, it's for a violent offense. And only 40% of the time is for a nonviolent offense. Um, and that's, to me, that discrepancy is important. But going back to um, intimate partners violence. Almost 80% of women in federal and state prisons have reported physical abuse. 60% have reported past sexual abuse. Three to four times women are more likely than the men in the prison to have been experienced abuse. And women who are violent offenders are even more likely to have been abused and to be incarcerated for then responding to that abuse violently. And almost nine out of 10 women who are in prison for killing their abusers had previously been battered by those same men that they then killed. So that's alarming. It is alarming. You know, it's one of the, it's it's almost like we're criminalizing people for being a victim of intimate partner, right? Mm-hmm. So as I was hearing you talk about those stories or, or those statistics, particularly around nonviolent offense. So all of those things that can impact a survivor trying to leave an abusive situation. So whether it's financial abuse, whether it is getting into D, the DCBS CPS system, knowing that people have experienced trauma often have an increase in substance use for coping, like all all of those things that might be ramifications of the abuse has now occurred to an individual, which makes them extremely vulnerable to now 
meet and car- to be incarcerated. And so I know, Meg, I was looking through some of the stats and you were talking a little bit about kind of the pathways for incarceration for women and girls. And I think it's a perfect time to sort of talk about that because I think it's one of the approaches we really need to look at as we're doing advocacy is there's a little bit of difficulty for people in jails and in custody or, you know, that are incarcerated to receive services. But these are exactly the women that we need to be offering services to and rethinking our program to reach out and be able to help them to either hope to stop this pathway or to be available for them when they're released. Right. So experiencing child abuse, uh, intimate partner abuse, or sexual abuse has been identified as one of seven pathways to incarceration for women and girls. So it's definitely a risk factor. Simply being a victim of intimate partner violence can put you at risk for many things. And that may be something that's not as intuitive to people who don't work with this population as much. But many of Our programs have found that many of the women who come to them for services have a criminal record. And so that's one reason, another reason, why KCADV is very interested in partnering with agencies like Department for Public Advocacy, because we realize that the life of a survivor of domestic violence is a complicated life, and they have many identities. And we see all the same isms playing out in that when we know that there's just rampant racism in our court systems and the disproportionate number of people of color who end up being incarcerated. There is, you know, misogyny. There's ableism, people who have disabilities like mental health um, issues. They're a huge segment of our prison populations right now. So we can't just ignore that this is a reality for many survivors of domestic violence. And, you know, unfortunately, as I said, sometimes the ultimate thing happens, one of the um, prime indicators of whether somebody will end up dead in a heterosexual relationship, um, and it could be the man or it could be the woman, but is if the man is abusing the woman. It's, you know, there's a much greater chance in that situation that, you know, someone will end up dead. And for those women who then end up going through that process, going through a trial or having to enter a guilty plea, the sentences that they face are pretty significant. Yeah, women are, sorry no. to interrupt, but women um, will actually receive harsher sentences for killing their male partners than the male would if he killed his partner. So say a, a man kills his female partner, the average sentence is two to six years. A woman who kills the male partner is actually sentenced to an average of 15 years. Wow. Which is ridiculous. And going back to what Meg was saying about the disparity between women of color versus white women, women of color are way too overrepresented in our prison systems. They're four and a half times more likely to be incarcerated. Girls of color who are victims of abuse are more likely to be processed by the criminal justice system and labeled as offenders, while white girls who are abused are more likely to be treated as victims and referred to for community services. And that's in this day and age, that there's no place for that. There's no excuse for that. The same thing, poor women who experienced intimate partner violence are also incarcerated at alarmingly higher rates than women who have more money. I know we talked about this as we were preparing for this a week or two ago, and one of you all said, I can't remember, but it was a little bit of the gaze, right? The intersectionality of what we expect women and how women to behave, along with um, also just our response of only accountability can be met 
with incarceration higher. You know, Kentucky is one of the highest rates of incarceration in the world. So we we have kind of a, a double whammy, right? Like we think that the answer to all uh, social ills is perhaps incarceration, and we have a standard of women that is different than what we have for for men. And so, do you think that that somewhat explains a little bit why women's sentences are higher versus men? Why women who are charged with with killing their abuser is higher than men who kill after having long patterns of abuser. Do you have an idea as to what that might be? Or is it just a, I don't know, just a perfect storm of wrong? You know, honestly, from a place of no expertise whatsoever, and just um, being a a woman and a, a mom myself, I've always felt like men were, behaviors that men displayed were easily excused. Um, you know, so men who tended to have a temper or be violent. We look at men who are like that and we're just like, well, that's just how he is. Right. But if that same quality is in a woman, we look at that woman like, what is wrong with her? Right. She must be insane. But we don't hold that same standard to men. And oftentimes in society, as far as being a parent, you know, women just we take on so much by and large, not not in every situation, but in most situations, the mom is the mama. You know, we are there through thick and thin. We are there no matter what. It is not optional. And we do see a lot of men who do treat parenting as kind of optional, not just when they leave, you know, the family home. And then there's the whole thing of actually raising the kids in different households. Um, But even while being in the household, um, women just tend to take on more responsibility. It's amazing how women are held to such a high standard compared to men. Uh, You know, we're expected not to mess up and not to have any of those negative qualities. And men, it's just kind of like, ah, that's just how they are. Boys will be boys kind of situation. Yeah. But, oh, no, go. Oh, that plays out in the in the system that we're seeing because if it were everything was equal, then men and women would be incarcerated at roughly the same rates for the same type of crimes. So what you should see is what's happening with the men where they are being incarcerated for violent crimes. That makes sense. And what you're seeing in women is they're being incarcerated for nonviolent crimes, which doesn't make sense. So yes, the disparity that Holly was talking about is definitely played out. I don't know the reason for it. I just, it is what it is right now. It's very unladylike behavior, I guess. <laughs> yeah, Meg? Well, you know, I, I think that the reason is sexism and, you know, the patriarchal structure of our society. But it is interesting that when our clemency project first started, which was way back in the late 1990s, you know, we were looking very specifically for women who had killed their male partners. And of course, you know, as the decades have rolled by, you know, we decided that doesn't make any sense. You know, what we should be looking for is someone who has been the victim of abuse at the hands of an intimate partner who wound up killing that partner, regardless of their gender, um, regardless of whether the relationship was, you know, a heterosexual relationship or a same-sex relationship. But what we found is that, you know, There are very, very few men who are incarcerated, charged with homicide, found guilty of homicide, of a female partner where they claim, I did it because I was scared to death of her. She had abused me for years, and this was my only option. I really thought she was going to kill me. So if there are men out there that 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 is their situation, that is not playing out in what we're seeing in their cases um, when we look at case records. So we do not limit 
limit our project at this point in time to just women who have killed men. Um, it could be any survivor. Um, and if it's a same-sex relationship, we would take that on as well. Yeah, I will say in all the research that we've been doing and all the outreach that we've done, I know of one case. We're working on um, one case where the male partner was a victim of domestic violence. Um, and then he ended up murdering, I can't remember if it was his wife or girlfriend at the time. I think they were married. Um, and he was found to be a domestic violence um, survivor in court. Um, so that did, you know, play out as far as like his sentence and things like that. Um, but we are advocating on his behalf. But yeah, that is the only case I know of. Um, and I love that we have branched out in this project to really open it up um, to, to anyone who has been a victim of violence with their partners. One of the things I'm hoping to, I mean, certainly for the base, for the purposes of this conversation, we're talking about clemency and we're talking about people who have committed homicide and in the severe cases of domestic violence and how that sometimes can pan out with someone losing their life and and how KCADV has very much, again, I don't mean to repeat, but partner with DPA to kind of look at the fairness and the justice sometimes and how those those charges are. I keep wanting to use the word meted out, meted out. I always get that wrong. I don't know, but you know what I mean. But I also am going to challenge folks that are listening in, advocates that are listening in, to start looking also at the lower level criminal justice process, because I think we ourselves as program providers and service providers need to be looking at women or survivors of intimate partner violence and how they're in the district courts and how they're how the impact of domestic violence and intimate partner violence is playing out. And if we look at this increase in crime rates, you know, which Andrew, you said so, you know, staggering crime rates that I'd like to get at it beforehand, right? You know, so before we get to this point where someone loses their life and a person feels their only option perhaps is is to, you know, actually use lethal, you know, forces, let's look at people that are, women in particular, that are often in there for shoplifting, minor drug offenses, you know, kind of hooked up with, you know, the CPS and DCBS cases. Because I think there's so many resources and things that we could provide to these families and to these women that we're just not doing. Doing. And I know there's resources, like we have a limited amount of resources. So EPO courts are enough really to kind of, I'm with Greenhouse 17, they can kind of overwhelm us. And then if you start putting me in misdemeanor court, oh my goodness. But if we have relationships with prosecutors, county attorney advocates, or have people attend, I think we can start looking at those signs and go, we're incarcerating a lot of people due to the poor options sometimes that they have due to the, to the domestic violence. We had Dr. Alex Ellswick on earlier, and he was talking about substance use. And that was one of the things he said, we can get really judgmental. What are you doing? Why did you make that choice? What are you doing being locked up? Like that's, you got to pay your penance, right? But he goes, lots of us would be making these same choices. We have a menu of poor options. So if we can give those resources to folks earlier, that would be sort of at a better space. So again, I don't want to pull away from the clemency project. We'll get right back into it. But so much work could be done in the lower courts that I think we're missing a whole population of folks. I do know too, one of the things that I always like to check with our with our own biases and our in our advocacy is the deserving or the worthy versus the non-worthy. I think when you're talking about incarcerated people, that's always a really big thing. You know, again, we sort of have cast judgment. Well, they've been convicted. They have to pay their, you know, pay their dues, whatever. And so we as an as a program and Case ADB often get really frustrated with the conversation of why 
why doesn't she just leave? And again, we often have poor options. You know, those same reasons that we should leave are the same reasons we stay. Financial, kids, a fear of, you know, of the violence escalating. Like, so, so many things sort of play out. And I know that one of you all had brought a letter that was gone to Governor Bevan that was talking about a little bit getting at why don't they leave. And I was wondering if one of you all could discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, we had sent a clemency petition on behalf of one of our clients. And part of the clemency petitions include a letter to the governor from the client where they can explain what happened in their own words um, directly to the governor. And this lady was answering that exact question, you know, why didn't she just leave? Right. That's that's what so many people say. Well, she should have left. She should have just left. She said, my abuser always told me that nothing or no one would ever stand in his way. No protection order, no police, nothing. If he wanted me, he would get me. On many occasions, this was proved to me to be true. He terrorized me and my children more times than I can count. But every time I tried to get help via an EPO, DBO, he was never served. He would harass me and threaten to show up at my family's homes if I didn't talk to him. He would show up at my place of employment as well, getting me fired or forcing me to walk out on jobs. So eventually, I always went back. It was just easier that way. I don't know or expect anyone to ever understand why I went back. Sometimes I don't understand myself. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it could be said any better than in a survivor's own words. It's a powerful letter. And, you know, and I think even when we were talking a little bit about how women experience things a little bit differently, I think women experience such guilt around this leaving or not leaving and what it, I don't know. I, I We had Jay Wells, who was here, a professor at, at UK, and she was looking at incarceration rates. And I think just the impact of these decisions can be so difficult and women can be so hard on themselves in this own process. Yeah. I think it's it's beyond guilt and it goes to shame. It's saying this person is doing this to me. I must be a bad person. And it starts, it can start so young. A lot of these people who are having the intimate um, partner violence. Now, it started when they were kids. It started when they were girls. They watched their father do that to their mother or they had it done to them as kids. And now it's just a cycle that they're in. And if it's ingrained in you since you are a little kid that this is what happens, then you start to think this is what I deserve. And then unfortunately, as a society, we're saying, we're going to lock you up. So yeah, you're right. This is what you deserved. And it's not. They just, they don't have the resources they need. And we have to do better for these these victims in order for them to be survivors and thrivers in society. We have to give them the resources that they need. Yeah. And I would add to that too, um, I think there's a little bit of this circular kind of rationale of, well, this is the choice I made. This is my bed I made, and now I have to lie in it. Um, And you see that a lot with relationships where there has been violence, and then the survivor will try to work through the violence. And so then they take the person back, and then the person is good for a while, but then it gets bad again. And then they they re-offend, and then the person somehow works through it, and then they take the person back, and then it's just this constant cycle 
cycle of abuse of trying to make it work and it not working, but you know what you're getting into because it's already happened and you've made your choice and here you are. And then we could have a much broader conversation, you know, about our culture and the the moral expectations, especially if you're in like a committed relationship, like a marriage and what's expected of you as a person in this committed relationship. So then that's a whole nother level of making my bed. I made a choice, you know, all the shame and everything that goes into that. So... There was a conference that I went to. It was one of the first conferences I I did. So it was like 25 years ago. So I don't mean to say it's the most brilliant thing, but one one of the um, presenters said this, and it was like, when does a person determine to leave? And it was talking primarily about women. And it was at the point when they no longer had any hope that the relationship was going to get any better. And I always thought that, you know, I've sort of just informally asked that conversation of people at shelter, because I do think we sort of, women in particular, stick in. We're here to kind of support. We want to keep the family intact. We often can look for things with the abusive partner of, well, it might be substance use, or it might be this, or it might be mental health, or it might be depression. So we we try to figure out everything that might be going on. Like we give it our all. And then at some point, we kind of wake up, or not wake up, but we kind of get to a point of, this isn't my work to do. I can't fix this situation. Now I have to figure out a plan to safely leave the situation, which again goes to that letter, right? Here was this person who wanted to get a protective order. It wasn't getting served. This person was kind constantly dodging things, saying this is never going to happen. And we know as the violence escalates usually when a person leaves, when that person is losing control of the situation. So you then have to navigate all of that. So it really is a process for a person to get to the point of making the decision to go, coming up with a plan to go, and then leaving. And it is certainly not a smooth sailing process, which then lands us to our clemency where many people, most people can get out of an abusive situation. Most people can get resources figured out. Some people can't. So Meg, let's talk a little bit about the current status or the current state, I guess, a little of the clemency project as it is right now. Yeah. And um, I'd also like to point out that, you know, clemency as a word means mercy or forgiveness. And, you know, when we submit these packets to the various governors that we've submitted them to, we're not saying that this person, you know, is totally innocent. They didn't commit the crime or that, you know, they should be absolved of any part that they played in it. Um, Most of the time, by the time we're submitting a packet, they've already served five years, eight years, 10 years. Um, I think the the longest uh, sentence that we had for someone who did get clemency, she had been in 18 years. So I think that's an important part of this whole concept. And I think that that's part of why in the Constitution, the governor is given that power to take different circumstances into account. Um, And so basically, we're just saying, you know, yes, this person experienced this abuse, and it was all part and parcel of what happened on that day um, when, you know, they felt like they had no other um, choice to make but to kill their partner. So before we talk about what's going on right now, just to give you a little bit of background of the real genesis of this project was a group of women who had all been convicted of um, killing their partners. They were at KCIW, which is right outside of Louisville. It's a women's prison. And um, they had a support group, which they ultimately ended up calling the Sisters in Pain. And in 1995, they put together a very simple quilt. It wasn't even really, it was sort of sewn together, but the quilt 
uh, pieces, the squares, um, were just this very simple material, and they had drawn pictures on them of you know what their abuse was like, what what they were thinking of um, when they thought about their abuse, and they did it as a therapeutic thing. Um, but that quilt ended up on display at the Kentucky State Fair that year, and um, <clears throat> Governor Burton Jones was taken to go see that quilt. Um, by somebody that was on the Kentucky Commission um, for Women, and it really touched him. So he decided to do something about that group of women. So what he did uh, when he was on his way out of the governor's office is he directed the parole board to go ahead and give those women early parole. Um, So it wasn't just a cakewalk. They still had to be on parole. Um, And from that, you know, came this idea that maybe there should be more organization around you know, trying to seek clemency um, for women. At that time, it was women um, in that position. So that's when um, KCADV and DPA started partnering, really. Um, The first step was to identify women who were in the correction system who had been convicted of this type of charge. And it was a pretty massive undertaking. They put a lot of work into that. They really tried to hone in on those specific cases where, you know, domestic violence, as far as any anyone could tell, definitely played a part in what happened and resulted in that person dying. And so ultimately, Governor Patton was in office, and um, I think around 13 clemency packets were submitted to Governor Patton. But unfortunately, in the last days of his governorship, he decided not to take any action. So that was really disappointing. But our two organizations soldiered on, kept working with the group of women that had been identified. And then the good news came in 2007 when Governor Fletcher was on his way out and we submitted clemency packets and he released six women. He gave pardons to the women who had been on parole since 1995. Um, And so we just, you know, kept working, trying to identify other women. And um, Governor Steve Bashir served for eight years. And historically, governors are reluctant to give pardons or clemency like while they're in office. Um, I guess they're afraid of any backlash that might come to them for that. And so because he was in office for eight years, we didn't submit anything until 2015 when he was on his way out of office. He too granted clemency, commutations, pardons, etc. Then in 2019, when Governor Bevan was on his way out of office, that's when Holly and Andrea became involved with the project. And he, you know, gave some great clemency um, to a variety of women, to the women that he gave pardons to who were already out at the time. He actually called them personally and um, left messages if they didn't pick up the phone, but said that he was very proud and honored to be able to, you know, to give them a pardon. So that was really wonderful. And so over the course of since 1995, we've had 35 participants in the Clemency Project receive various levels of relief from um, from commutation, being referred to the parole board, all the way up to a full pardon. And that's those have been given by four different governors from different parties. So it really is a bipartisan thing. And so now that Andrea and Holly are on board, they can tell us about what's going on with our project at the moment. 
I just want to, before you start, could I, is it okay? I just want to say, I, we had two people that Greenhouse 17 had worked with and they got the call from Governor Bevan. I have never heard such a joyful, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, the governor just called and then they were calling each other. Did you get a call? And then they were afraid to ask because they got a call, but they didn't know. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. So anyways, I just wanted to add that piece. I know, Meg, you had had communication with lots of folks too, but it was a happy moment. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Where are we at? I'm so not, I'm at not, oh, well, where are we at where now? Are we at currently, what does it take? Like, how do you even determine who is, you know, who, what cases you're going to take on? How do you vet that? What, what does your office staffing look like for that? Like, it just seems like an insurmountable task. It is a big undertaking. And thankfully, we have a great group of volunteers um, who take it upon themselves in addition to they're already very high caseload and do this work because it's very important to us. Um, and so we have volunteers from trial offices, from the appellate division, from education, all wanting to help out from post-conviction as well. That's where we are. Um, all wanting to help out and do what they can to hopefully get these women relief. As far as how we vet them, I'm going to let our investigator answer that question. <laughs> yeah, so it is is it is a process. It's definitely not a perfect process. We've went through and pulled up incarceration records. Um, who is in who is in prison now for a violent offense, uh, particularly homicide, but also, you know, some serious assaults may also um, qualify. And then sometimes it's Googling, you know, let's let's read up about this case. Let's see if there's some kind of indication that maybe domestic violence was involved. Um, and we just have a chart. And we keep track. Yes, I've looked at this case. Sometimes we'll talk to the trial attorney and say, you know, do you remember this case? Can you share with me any details? Is it possible that he or she was a victim of some kind of domestic violence? You know, was there a self-defense claim? So we just kind of go through and just dig a little bit. Another thing we have done is our leadership will talk to other leadership throughout the state. And we have encouraged our all the local trial offices, if they have, a case pending that they know is, you know, related to domestic violence to just let us know. Like, you know, here's this case coming down the pike. It may not go anywhere. You know, maybe this person will be acquitted. Maybe not. We, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know that this person is a survivor. And so we always hope that they will reach out to us um, and, and keep us in mind as far as if there is some kind of remedy outside of the court that might be appropriate eventually. And we have had some trial offices also reach out to us with cases, you know, that have already been concluded, the person's already been convicted and say, hey, I think this is a good case that you guys can look into. I think this person is deserving of some kind of relief because of what they've been through. Um, so it was kind of a messy process right now. You know, we get phone calls and emails and sometimes we'll just get a news article and, and we just try to keep track of everything the best we can. And I mean, so far, so good. I know we're not finding everybody who's worthy, um, but we're trying to find as many as we can, and we're trying to help out as many people as we can. I didn't even think about this, Meg, but is when you when you were talking with the last legislative session and with collecting data, right, on on domestic violence homicides, which really has been archaic in the past. Like, I just will read the Herald Leader, and I'll send something to our director, and I'll send something to KCADB, going, "This looks like a domestic violence homicide. Mm -hmm. It's a very hit." 
hit and miss. If I missed a day of reading the newspaper, I might not see it. And so, and and there's lots of people looking. But this last legislation, there really was talk about capturing that data. One, hopefully that we can learn from it, but I would think it would be tremendous also in identifying cases, um, maybe for future clemency work. Yeah, absolutely. So Senator Whitney Westerfield had filed Senate Bill 270, and it passed. And so for the first time in Kentucky, we're going to have a very comprehensive annual report on domestic violence. And it won't be just uh, criminal court cases. Um, It'll involve information from the Cabinet for Health and Family Services. It'll be information from Administrative Office of the Court. It'll be information from our member programs, our domestic violence shelter, as well as the prosecutors, thems, et cetera. And so um, our justice cabinet has been tasked with putting together that report and it will be presented to various committees of the legislature and to the governor. And then KCADV will be in a position to make recommendations for best practices and any needed legislative fixes, et cetera. So we're really excited about that. The first report should be coming out in the fall of 2023. That's wonderful. It is, you know, and Andrea, you said something a little bit ago when I was asking, you know, kind of what this team looks like. And you said, well, and then we have volunteers from this and this and this. So are these folks not funded positions, the people that are doing this work, this team of people that are representing and and, and presenting cases for pardon and clemency? And I know Michael, probably, I always use those words interchangeably. Sorry, <laughs> I am not the attorney. So I use those words and I intermix those words. But is that usually run from a volunteer office? Yes, we're all, in addition to our caseloads, we're all volunteers. So we all chose to do this. And honestly, we have, we're never short for volunteers at DPA. Everyone wants to help out the most we can. And so I think people are just, we're happy to do it. We're grateful that KCADV has partnered with us. We're hoping that continues for a long time. And as long as there are people who we can help, then we're going to try to help. Well, I I know we are certainly grateful for the work that you all are doing. And I know there was one other letter that you all were going to share as well. And it was talking about a a story, or I don't know if it was a letter, but it was a story around a pardon. So I kind of burst in, I guess, a little bit with my little snippet of joy. But there was some Something, there was a story that you all wanted to share as well. Yes. No, I, I love that. This uh, one client of ours, um, so let me just kind of give a little bit of background about what she went through. Um, so she was in this very tumultuous relationship. There were a lot of law enforcement constantly coming out to the house, EPOs, DVOs. You know, she would go back and, you know, forgive him and then try to get the, the domestic violence pulled and then try to make it work and then it wouldn't work. And it was just, it was just a, a really rough relationship. So the night before the shooting, he actually broke into her home and held her at knife point. Um, She was dealing with a very serious physical health issue. And so she was just home by herself, just trying to recover from this treatment that she had received. He broke in held her at knife point. And so the whole night she was just trying to survive. Um, She was saying all the things that she needed to say to make him happy, doing all the things that he wanted her to do to make him happy. Um, Anything to make him feel comfortable that she wasn't going to try to escape. 
So anyways, the very next day, he went to work and she went to the courthouse and she was begging for help. Uh, she wanted to talk to the prosecutor. Well, they told her, well, he's he's not available. You need to come back at three o'clock. She told them at the courthouse, she said, I probably won't be alive by three o'clock. I need help. She also called dispatch a couple times that day, but they, they didn't help her. They didn't send anyone. So she went home to gather up some of her clothes and things, and she was going to stay with her mom. So she went to her own house to get her own things. But before she was done packing her things, she could hear his tires squealing, squealing in her driveway. I think it was a gravel driveway, so she could hear it, and she knew he was coming. He left his car running and opened the door. He came in the house and he said, oh, I'm not going to use the exact words, but he said, you messed up this time. And he said, let's go. And at that point, she knew, she knew that he, that, that he was very likely going to kill her. That's when she, she actually got a gun. She had a gun because she already knew he was coming. She had a gun ready and um, he didn't stop. He kept proceeding towards her and she closed her eyes and she pulled the trigger. Anyway, she, she called 911, you know, and everything. And one of the local news came into the jail the next day, or no, it may have been later that day. And she said, I killed the man I loved, you know. And I think that that's something that makes the domestic violence situation very different, you know, is that these are, are people who they love the person, you know. And so it's a tragedy. It's a loss. It's a loss at their own hand as well. Um, but it still is a loss of someone who they, they care about deeply. And so um, going back to her story, she was charged with murder. She pled down to manslaughter second. And basically the judge in that case more or less told her like, you really don't want to take this to trial, you know, and she took that to think, you know, this may not go well for me. And uh, her attorney at the time, I believe had that same feeling like this may not be worth the risk, you know, so um, she actually received a 10 year sentence and was probated. So considering that she was convicted, it wasn't the worst outcome that could have happened. Um, but she was one of the people who was pardoned by uh, former Governor Matt Bevan. And in his, they released like a little certificate, you know, and it kind of says a little snippet about this case. And he said, she defended herself with deadly consequences. She did what she had to do. And I thought, that really just nails home the point that she had no option. It was very clearly self-defense. Um, and when she received that pardon, I can still remember I, I called her and she was just in tears. She was just so happy and, you know, just thank you so much. And it, it was probably the most rewarding day of, of my career with DPA. So it was, it was wonderful. But her story is just really compelling. It's really compelling. And thank you for sharing. I can just, you know, it just makes your kind of heart sort of stop. You can just imagine sitting in that house and hearing that, you know, car pull up and just knowing what's coming next, you know, and making horrible decisions, you know, of, of or having to be stuck with making a horrible decision. Let me rephrase that of doing something you don't want to do, you know, at all. And then I think, you know, one of the things that often kind of comes back is she had somewhat prepared, right? And I think sometimes that can really throw throw cases off a little bit because it looks premeditated or you had a gun, but she had called for help. She had asked other people for help. Like she had done these things mm -hmm. and still this is sort of what she was left with. And I just can't, I can't imagine that experience. So 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that. So now where do we go, right? So some of the, we talked a little bit about how we find cases, people are now kind of hearing about you all, there's a reputation where maybe trial attorneys are giving you all a call, it's not solely having to look through records and things, right? But so some people are kind of coming forward. But what are some of those things that are currently and ongoing? Or where do you sort of see this project going for future? Well, we definitely like for it to continue. And just like at DPA, they're asking their staff, you know, to volunteer and do above and beyond what they're already doing. And they're very busy over there. And KCADV doesn't really have any extra funding either to do this work. So it really is a labor of love. We've been doing it, you know, for several decades now. So we'll keep doing it. It would be lovely for us to find a funding source. Many, you know, federal grants and and things like that, you know, they're, they're so restrictive on what you can spend the money on. And so doing this type of work typically isn't something that you can find government funding to do. But, you know, we've talked about a lot how we really need to get ahead of the curve and do more so that when a survivor of intimate partner violence ends up being charged with a crime like this, um, that there'll be a lot of resources to put into that case right up front. Um, And so whether that's, you know, having fees for expert witness testimony, which can make a huge difference in a case like this, because so much of it is, as we've talked about, why didn't she just leave? Why did she go back? Um, Why did she drop that protective order? Why did she tell the prosecutor no I don't I don't want him prosecuted for that you know assault a lot of those survival mechanisms are very counterintuitive to someone who doesn't do this type of work so expert witness testimony is really critical um, for a case like this and you know training for the trial attorneys of course not every person that finds themselves in this situation has a public defender many of them go out and hire and pay a lot of money private attorneys who oftentimes you know don't get a good result Um, So, you know, we can't really, you know, do much about that other than, you know, potentially offer them training as well. And, you know, just trying to raise the level of understanding of the public about all of the implications of intimate partner violence. And I think earlier in this conversation, um, you know, we were talking about costs and, you know, we think about how much it's costing our commonwealth to keep so many people locked up. And, you know, what are the things that we could do at the beginning of someone's life, you know, to to really reduce the risk that they're going to end up being incarcerated. And so I think that we just need to keep banging on that drum for public awareness. And, you know, survivors face a lot of the same or all of the same challenges that all Kentuckians face. You know, they need access to health care and they need access to transportation and, and safe and affordable housing. They need food. They need some source of income. They need child care so they can go to work. And so, you know, for our listening audience, we're just asking people to keep those types of things in mind um, when they have an opportunity to, say, exercise their right to vote and, you know, help shape the policy of the Commonwealth and, you know, what's important here. I think so many times that we can do things that are so destabilizing, right? So many times when people come forward to say they're a victim of domestic violence, it it puts at risk 
their housing. It puts at risk their their the welfare of their children. It puts at risk their finances, right? So even just in a perfect, if everything went well and you're leaving a relationship, those things become a little more unstable if you're having to leave your home and then you add on top of it the abuse. And so I, I really hope and I challenge folks that are listening in and are working at primarily domestic violence, intimate partner violence programs, are your current policies in place and programming in place, is it helping the people that we're serving? Or is it being part of a system that often can kind of destabilize? So we had talked it earlier today, which, you know, doesn't fit time-wise as far as this podcast goes, but we were talking about housing. And so many of our member programs have housing programs. And so do we, are we filling kind of that need to support people or are we have the same kind of one strike you're out, mm-hmm. you know, oh, there you've brought an, an abusive partner into the home. And so that you've made everybody else unsafe. So how do we begin to rethink how we're looking at support and expectations versus punishment and accountability to it? So um, I just want to challenge, sometimes we look at it and we point at all the system, point at this system could be better and this system could be better. Many times it's our own system that can be a little bit better because we're in the same sort of space of bias and, and judgment, particularly when you're talking about substance use, bad parenting, and incarceration. There's a lot of feelings that kind of go around that. And so I I think it's imperative that we realize that many of the people that we are working with have found themselves for circumstances somewhat out of their control incarcerated. We really need to be kind of lifting up as opposed to, well, that's that's not our folks. It's very much who we need to be reaching out to. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just want to add real quick, I think worldwide, but especially in the USA, I feel like compassion would really go a long way um, in pretty much every aspect of, of all of our lives um, for these women. And I think when we're looking at services for not just these women, but also the families and everybody, it needs to be very individualized. Um, we need to look look at everything on a case-by-case basis. You can't do one broad stroke and cover everything. And I think it's important to look at situations and see all the different grays in between the black and white. I think very much. And I always like, we talked about this as we were sort of planning for it. I always like people to listen, to leave with sort of some action steps. So we talked a little bit about finances. We talked a little bit about looking at our own sort of internal program, but is there something that for each of you that you kind of pop up and go, here's something that you can do right now that would be really beneficial as far as supporting this work? Well, I'll start. Yes. Good. I'll start us off and I'll get back up on my soapbox like I usually do. And that is that, you know, uh, an incident like that where someone feels like they have to kill their partner, you know, it didn't start that day and it didn't start the day before. It started a long time ago. And just like Andrea said, you know, it probably goes back even into their own childhood and the childhood of the person that ended up dead. And so I think action steps are, you know, we need to figure out you know, how we're going to um, prevent these things from happening before they get there. And I heard someone say that, you know, if every woman and child in Kentucky had everything that they needed, that there would be no domestic violence. And I think that's really true that, um, you know, we all have the power to effectuate change, whether it's, you know, locally at a community level, you know, finding out what 
resources there are, what resources are lacking, you know, getting involved in those sorts of things. And on a statewide level, everybody has the right to vote. Uh, Not everybody. Some people have had that right taken away from them, unfortunately. But if you do have the right to vote, you know, make sure that you educate yourself about, you know, issues that are going to definitely impact people. Um, Because so many times I think we just dehumanize other individuals and we other them. As far as domestic violence is concerned, you know, I would encourage people to educate themselves, you know, about the complexity of the dynamics of domestic violence. And, you know, if somebody that you know, if you think or suspect that they're experiencing domestic violence, then be there for them and be supportive and don't be judgmental and understand that they're going through a very complex situation, have information ready to share with them when it's appropriate. And, you know, they'll figure out when they can use that information to help themselves get out of that situation. And, um, you know, we have our 15 member programs across the state and you can find out what your program is in your part of the state. And, you know, all of them accept donations and have fundraisers and some of them accept volunteers. Now that we're sort of coming out of COVID, um, I think we're going to see that go back up again. And even if it's not at a domestic violence program, if it's at a food bank or or any sort of, you know, community support organization, you know, get out there and and do a little volunteering. And that's what I would say would be our action steps. You know, you're not going to be able to step in between that gun and stop that bullet and stop that homicide. But I think we need to go way further back from that point and do what we can to help people prosper and, and live healthy and safe lives. Meg, I think that was beautifully put. And, you know, and Andrea Holly, I don't know if you have any kind of additional sort of closing pieces. You know, it's just such a, it's such a heavy subject. I know we were kind of kind of joyfully sitting down before we started this podcast just to go, you know, let's just, let's have a little fun because as we start jumping into this, it, it's heavy, you know, and, and it takes special folks that are willing to kind of dig in, you know, DPA and I hear Meg talking about you all all the time. I mean, there's just a special place for you all in our hearts because it is hard, hard work. It's got to be at times frustrating and disappointing and aggravating. And it's so funny. I'm looking at Andrea's face. And she's like, yeah. (laughs) And so all those things. So I just want to, you know, as a member program, want to thank you all so much for the work that you do. But I asked you if you had closing things. That's what I do. I ask if people have closing thoughts and then I talk over them. That's what I do. So anything else with you all? Well, my thoughts can't be any better put than how Meg said them. So I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't get to go first. <laughs> but I keep I keep writing things down on paper. One of them is just be kinder than necessary. Be kinder to everyone you meet because it helps more than more than you know because you don't know somebody's situation. And like Meg was saying, it's people, especially I'm an attorney, work for DPA, we want to fix, we want to help. The answer is not always saying, here, are the, here, let's get you out of the situation. Let's leave right now. That's not always tenable. It's not always what somebody needs to hear. So just being there and having the information or just being a support and treating the person like a person, like you treat anybody else. That's sometimes what is best and what is needed 
right then. And everything, what Meg was saying, goes it goes back so far. It, it needs to be taught very early on. We need to empower not just our, our girls, but our boys to teach them how we treat each other. And it's I, I love empowering our girls, but I also love empowering our boys to say this isn't this isn't how we act. So we need those services to meet not just for victims but also for abusers so they can learn new patterns. It's really hard if you're in a cycle of family violence. This is all you've ever learned to break that cycle. So we all need the resources and that's that's where it comes back to just be kinder and be understanding of where people are coming from and work with them and love them where they are. Love and kindness, love and kindness is always really good. You know, we sometimes overcomplicate things, you know, but showing up for people, caring for people, meeting people where they're at. We don't have to ever overcomplicate things ever. (laughs) Yeah, you're not guilty of that at all. I saw your notes. I saw your notes. Yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? No. She, I mean, Andrea just and Meg both, they just, they said it perfectly. And I agree 100%. And I'm here for it. Well, thank you all so much. If you want to hear more about the Clemency Project, I know you can always reach out to DPA. You can certainly reach out to Meg at KCADB at the Coalition. Definitely do want your support. People need want more information on how to help, financially how to help, how to volunteer, all those things. Um, I'm sure that there is, it would be a welcome call for Meg to receive to connect people if that's something that, that you're so in, inclined to do. So thank you all so much um, for being here today and talking about a very serious subject and for uh, truly I, I cannot tell you the joy that these women had when they called me so 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 it is meaningful meaningful work and um so you all have been listening actually with meg savage with kcadb andrea reed and holly harrison hawkins with dpa and my name is diane fleet and i'm here representing kcadb and our podcast series This KCADV project was supported by the Department of Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families Award, number 2201KYSTC6, a contract with the Commonwealth of Kentucky, number PON2736-220-0001825. And VAWA 2021 Kentucky KYDOMES 00033, awarded through the Kentucky Justice and Public Safety Cabinet. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this project are the views of the authors and do not reflect the views of federal, state, local, and or private funders.